Uh, you can keep that portion uh, that Raymond has just read of God's Word open before you, Matthew chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 12. Um, you'll recall a few weeks ago we began our series in Matthew's Gospel, and we continue it today as we think about the Messiah's wise worshippers. The Messiah's wise worshippers. <clears throat> well, the origin story of world-famous people is often a fascinating one. Uh, someone excels in the world of politics, business, entertainment, or sport, and eventually the documentaries get made and the interviews are recorded, and we find out how this person, now at the top of their game, now world famous, uh, came to be at the peak of their powers. And often it can be a very interesting story. Uh, many of the most famous and gifted athletes or world leaders, they, they came perhaps from poverty. Uh, they had a very rough upbringing. They, no one would have expected that they were going to be famous someday. And yet, through one, through one means or another, that is now the case. And people are often interested to ask the question, how did they become the person they are? And so the origin story of that famous person becomes very interesting. And we began uh, Matthew's Gospel a couple of weeks ago, and, and it begins with the origin story, or at least the the earthly origin story of Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Messiah. That means the one promised and chosen uh, as described in the Old Testament to usher in the kingdom of God and to redeem the lives of his people. And we saw a number of weeks ago now how Matthew chooses to begin his gospel with Jesus' family tree back in chapter 1 showing us that Jesus is a direct descendant of King David, crucially important, of course, if he was to claim to be the Messiah. We also then looked at the announcement of his imminent birth uh, to his adoptive father, Joseph. And Joseph, of course, himself being a descendant of David. So again, uh, although Joseph was only Jesus' adoptive father, there could be no question that Jesus was indeed uh, a son of David, and indeed, the son of David. Um, it's, of course, made very clear also in that passage that although uh, Joseph was Jesus' adoptive father, Mary was his mother, and yet his conception in Mary's womb was a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus of Nazareth is not only Jesus of Nazareth, he is Jesus of heaven. He is God made flesh in perhaps the greatest miracle of all time, the conception of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in Mary's womb. And here in chapter 2, Matthew provides further evidence that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah. And we always need to remember this is his goal all throughout the gospel, but particularly in these early chapters. There are more quotes from the Old Testament in these early chapters. There are more supernatural interventions in these early chapters of Matthew. Uh, by concentration than there are in quite a few of other parts of his gospel. And so at the very beginning of the gospel, he is keen to emphasize this point that Jesus is the Messiah. But here in chapter 2, he emphasizes that, he provides evidence for that, uh, in what for some of his Jewish readers at least, might have been a very surprising way. Matthew shows us Jesus being sought out and worshipped by Gentiles, by non-Jewish people. It's emphasized when we began uh, studying Matthew's gospel, he is particularly concerned to write to Jewish people. 
It's not that he doesn't want other people to read his gospel, of course, but he has a particular concern for his Jewish readers. And so it might have been very surprising to some Jews who first read Matthew's gospel that this is what we find in Matthew chapter 2. Because the Jewish people in general have become very inward looking at the time of Jesus' arrival on the earth. For centuries, in fact, they had really been turned away. (coughs) They had purposefully turned themselves away from the nations of the world. And this was one of the great failings of Israel as a people and as a kingdom in in the Old Testament era. That after the days of Solomon, Israel was not only divided in itself, but it had really no desire to attract the nations to come and worship the true and living God. They had become caught up in their own traditions and the influence of rabbis in man-made customs and laws that they had piled on top of what the Bible actually said. And yet the prophets in the Old Testament have made very clear, as, as we heard in the reading earlier from Isaiah 49, for example, that this is what true Israel was always supposed to be. It was supposed to be a beacon. It was supposed to be a light for all the nations because someday God's kingdom would extend over and, and, and cover all the nations. And so it's remarkable and it's crucially important that the very first people Matthew tells us about who sought out and worshipped the newborn Jewish Messiah were Gentiles. In fact, Matthew seems as surprised as anyone about what happened. Look at chapter 2, verse (coughs) 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, behold. And that's the Bible's way of saying, Wait till you hear this. Pay careful attention to this. This is very surprising. This is not what you would have expected. And Matthew's saying here, you're never going to believe who the first people were to worship Jesus. And that's the first, that's the main reaction that we, that we see to the birth of the Messiah today. But not only do, are we going to see those who worship the Messiah, we're going to see those who are opposed to the Messiah. Those are the two reactions to the newborn king And they remain the two reactions to King Jesus today. And so let's think first of all today about the worshippers who searched for the Messiah. The worshippers who searched for the Messiah. And there's a few, there's three things in particular I want you to notice about them. First of all, that they were unlikely worshippers. They were unlikely worshippers. Matthew simply says, if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, those words are perhaps so familiar to us, words we've heard so many times over the years at this time of year that we don't appreciate the shock and surprise that they carry. The word for wise men in the Greek there is the word magoi or magi in Latin. Uh, Magi was a word used to describe all sorts of people, Uh, but most writers believe that it would have been originally used to describe pagan priests in places like Babylon. Babylon, of course, being the place where Daniel and a whole generation of Jews had been relocated hundreds of years before this. And it's quite possible that these 
Magi came from there or somewhere like that, some uh, foreign ancient city where there would have been good education systems and lots of libraries and resources and so forth. Magi were not kings, no matter what the carols say. They were not kings, but they were men who studied philosophy, astrology, astronomy, and or world religions. And so that made them men who were very likely to be advisors to kings, the sort of men that kings would want to talk to if they had any interest in learning about their world a bit more. And so that's really all we can know about these men. They, they're, they're called magi. They're, they're wise men. They're most likely pagans. Well, they're certainly pagans, prob- perhaps pagan priests, but nonetheless, well-educated men. And yet we have so many more questions about them. How many of them were there? doesn't say there were three. <laughs> Maybe there were three. Maybe there were two. Maybe there were ten. We don't know. Where exactly did they come from? doesn't say they came from the Orient. It says they came from the East. How did they know to come? Where exactly, what exactly had they been studying? Were they from Babylon? Uh, some commentators wonder, had they, had they come across writings of Daniel or maybe copied parts of the prophecies of the Old Testament stored in the Babylonian libraries? We don't know. How did they know that one particular star in the sky was a message about the newborn Jewish king? We don't know. But what we do know is they wanted to worship the king of the Jews. And they were among the very first people to do so. We know, of course, the shepherds came uh, probably sooner than these men. But as far as Matthew is concerned, these are the first formal visitors received by the king of the Jews, the king of the nations. And yet they are Gentiles, pagans, possibly pagans who had worshipped false gods in their own country. These were the men who came to worship the king of the Jews. You see, Matthew is making clear, friends, right at the start of his gospel, that although salvation is for the Jews, it's not just for the Jews. The Messiah God had promised through the prophets was a Messiah who would draw people unto himself from all the nations of the world. (coughs) And we don't need to look any further than the Psalms to find these kinds of prophecies. Psalm 72, we'll, we'll sing from it later, God willing. Psalm 72, verse 10. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. As I said, these men were likely not kings themselves, but they could well have been advisors to kings. They could well have been representatives of kings and representatives of their nations. And Psalm 72 promised that they would come and that many more like them would come. Even more specific is Isaiah 60, verses 5 and 6. Isaiah 60, verse 5, The wealth of the nations shall come to you, a multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. See, friends, Jesus is a king worthy to be praised and worshipped by all the nations. And even the most unexpected people 
can be brought to worship him. So they were unlikely worshipers, but they were also, they were sincere worshipers. They were sincere worshipers. These men arrive in Jerusalem, verse 2, and they have a simple question. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star (coughs) when it rose and have come to worship him. Again, try not to let the familiarity uh, dull your senses to what is happening here. These men have traveled hundreds of miles, maybe thousands of miles, for days and weeks, if not months. All they have to go on is the fact that a star appeared in their home country. Notice, by the way, the star didn't guide them all the way to Jerusalem. It says, we saw his star when it rose. And they, they, they had taken enough simply from the star rising in the sky to say, we need to go to Jerusalem. It's, Jerusalem is the historical capital of the Jewish people. That's where we'll find the king. And so they've arrived in town and uh, they've assumed that they'll go to the Jewish capital. Uh, Perhaps they've assumed that everyone in the streets will be celebrating that their king has been born. They're just hoping that after hundreds of miles, they'll be warmly welcomed. They're, They're hoping that someone will be good enough to show them to this new king. They're hoping that no one takes offense at the sight of foreign pagan magi. On the streets of Jerusalem. It takes a lot of sincerity to go to all that effort, to take all those risks just to come and meet this newborn king. These men, friends, were sincere. Worshipping this king was enough to motivate them for a lot of uncomfortable miles, and even perhaps they didn't know an uncomfortable reception. How uncomfortable are we willing to get? For the sake of our Savior's name, for the purpose of worshiping God as he has directed us at the times and in the opportunities and in the ways that are available to us. They were sincere worshipers. The last thing to notice about them is, of course, that they were guided worshipers. They were guided worshipers. Verse 2 again, we saw his star (coughs) when it rose. Again, we we don't know what this star was or even if it was just something that looked like a star uh, to them that had the appearance of a star. But notice the conviction and the certainty of these men. They, They don't say, we saw a particularly interesting star and we took that as a sign that perhaps somewhere in the world someone special has been born and so we're going on a sort of a tour of all the great capital cities of the world. No, they say, we saw his star when it rose, the star of the king of the nations, of the Jews and of the nations. They knew it. They knew exactly what it was when they saw it. They knew where they had to go. They knew who they were looking for. Again, we don't know how they knew. There's so many questions we'll get to ask these men someday in the new heavens and the new earth. We don't know how they knew, but they knew. God and his goodness and his providence guided these worshipers. Otherwise, there would have been no way that they would have known to come, wanted to come, would have come. God revealed to them in a special, personal way, in a way that, however it was, they understood that their Savior had been born. 
See, friends, our God is in the business of miraculously guiding men and women and boys and girls unto himself. Our God gladly guides men and women out of darkness into the wonderful light of Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting when you, th- when you read this passage after what we uh, looked at in Revelation a few weeks ago, the, almost the very last description Jesus gives of himself in the book of Revelation, the very end of the Bible. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. I am the guiding light that you need in your life. And God, friends, guides us unto Christ. God causes dead sinners to come alive in Christ, to be drawn unto him, to be enraptured by him, to love him, to worship him. It's God who does it. It's not up to us. Psalm 25 verse 8 says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. God guides the misguided. These men likely knew plenty of facts and figures. They likely knew about religions and philosophies and world histories. But only the special, supernatural, personal work of God could have guided them to the King of Kings. We believe that God usually and ordinarily works through what seem very ordinary means to us. We believe that he works through families, parents training up their children in the ways of the Lord. We believe that he works through ordinary conversations, a neighbor sharing the gospel with another neighbor or with a family member. We believe that he works through what seems to the world the very ordinary, foolish means of the preaching of the word. But friends, I'm sure you've heard testimonies of the most unlikely people through the most remarkable means who otherwise would never have come to worship Jesus, nonetheless coming to worship Jesus. There are amazing accounts of what God is doing in some of the more hostile parts of the world today, particularly Muslim-majority countries, where there's perhaps no physical copy of God's word, maybe anywhere in the country or for miles around. And yet, in amazing ways, God is leading Muslim men and women and boys and girls to believe in Jesus Christ. And insofar as the accounts that you hear do lead men and women to truly seek out the Lord Jesus Christ as he is presented to us in the Scriptures... I don't think those accounts can necessarily be dismissed. We're not to limit what God is able or willing to do for sinners who need to be guided onto his truth as it is found in Christ. So if there are those whom you are praying for, whom you can't directly speak to or influence because of distance or other factors, friends, don't despair. Keep praying that the God who controls every moment, every action, every atom in the universe can guide anyone, anywhere, unto himself. These these wise men were unlikely worshippers, but they were sincere worshippers. And so they were faithfully guided to Jesus by the sovereign hand of God. Let me say also, for those of us who are Christians this morning, if if we want to know and love our Savior more in 2024 than we have in 2023, If you have a sincere desire to mature and produce spiritual fruit, then the good news is that God will lead and guide you as well. 
If he was able to lead and guide these magi all the hundreds or thousands of miles that it took into a foreign land to meet this newborn king, God is able by his spirit to grow you in your love for Christ, to grow you in your service of Christ, to grow you in your knowledge of Christ in the days to come, that you would be an even more eager and faithful worshiper of him. So the worshipers who searched for the Messiah. Uh, Secondly, and slightly more briefly, we're going to think together about the ruler who raged against the Messiah. The ruler who raged against the Messiah. Uh, Matthew has already mentioned in verse 1 that Jesus was born during the reign of Herod the king. And of course, there are several Herods uh, mentioned in the Gospels and also in the book of Acts. Um, This Herod is Herod the First, or Herod the Great, as he liked to call himself. And as these wise men begin searching in Jerusalem for the king of the Jews, word about them reaches King Herod. Uh, Let me tell you a bit about this man. Herod the Great, the king of the Jews, uh, wasn't actually a king. He wasn't actually a Jew, and in many ways, he wasn't actually that great. But Herod was, in fact, descended from the Edomites, a historical, hostile nation to Israel. He was descended from from Esau, if you go back far enough. Uh, He was very concerned with building projects. He he undertook colossal building projects, most famously the rebuilding of the the second Jewish temple in Jerusalem, the the western wall of which is, is still standing, of course, today in Jerusalem. Um, Herod simply talked and acted in Jewish ways when he needed to, when he, when he really needed to gain the, rep, the respect or the popularity of the Jews, he would throw them a bone, he would uh, come out with big gestures to keep up his popularity with the people. Uh, to become more popular with the Jews, one of the things that Herod did was he married a Jewish woman named Mariamne. Uh, He also married nine other women, by the way, but he married Mariamne because her family were very popular. Their ancestors had been Jewish freedom fighters, and so he thought that this would gain him a lot of uh, brownie points with the Jewish people. But very soon, Herod became paranoid about his in-laws. Mariamne convinced him to give her brother the position of high priest, which Herod did, Uh, but when he realized that his brother-in-law was more popular than him, he arranged for him to be drowned in such a way that it looked like an accident. As Herod got older, his paranoia became worse. In fact, he got so bad that he eventually killed Mariamne herself and two of their sons. He killed his own flesh and blood. He was absolutely obsessed with himself, with keeping his power, keeping his authority. authority. And he committed many other atrocities. It didn't take much for you to just look the wrong way at Herod and you could find yourself Uh, facing a a premature death. So when a group of foreign professors and priests show up in Jerusalem wondering where is is the one who has been born the king of the Jews, think how terrified Herod must have been. He's an old man now, he's in his 70s, but he is still very concerned about what he's just heard. Uh, The word there for troubled... (coughs) It says in verse 3 that Herod was troubled. Uh, It's the same word that Matthew uses later in his gospel to describe the fear of the disciples when they see Jesus walking on water. So Herod here is absolutely terrified. 
These men are looking for someone who has been born king of the Jews. Well, Herod's thinking to himself, I know rightly that I'm not a Jew. I wasn't born to be a king. I was made a king, and I'm not a Jew at all. So, of course, someone who's been born king of the Jews is immediately going to be a more popular choice with the people than me. And it's interesting, isn't it, that he knows his Bible enough to ask the chief priests and scribes to check something for him. Look at verse 4. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so this man knows enough to know that, oh yes, there's some Jewish king, there's some Messiah that's supposed to come someday. And in verses 5 and 6, he gets the answer that these chief priests and scribes quote here from Micah chapter 5. And they tell uh, King Herod that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. And so Herod goes and calls the wise men and asks them exactly when did this star appear? Why does he do that? Well, we get the answer, of course, in uh, the second half of the chapter, which we'll look at this evening. If you look at chapter 2, verse 16. Uh, Look what happens after the wise men have visited Jesus. Herod became furious (coughs) and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. So what was he really asking the wise men in verse 8 was how old is this child? How long has this threat to my kingship been around? This man is so obsessed with himself that he's willing to murder a little child. In fact, as we'll see this evening, he's willing to murder, perhaps it was 10, perhaps it was 20 little boys. Say Herod was about 70 years old when the wise men visited him. He died soon after this. Why should it matter to him if a baby king has been born? His life's almost over. He's had his day. He's built his monuments. He's defeated his enemies. He's offed his wife and whoever else he's worried about uh, killing him first. He's living in wealth and comfort. But the thought of a new, perhaps more popular, perhaps more powerful king coming along, robbing Herod of the glory of his last days, it has him raging. And of course, behind the rage of Herod is the rage of Satan, as we'll think more about this evening. Herod thought he was the most powerful king in the world. He wasn't even the most powerful king in the region. He was under the authority of the Romans himself. But in actuality, whatever kingly authority he had, he was a slave to the prince of darkness, to Satan. And anyone enslaved to sin and Satan, friends, will rage against Jesus in one way or another. Some people rage against him by arguing strongly and publicly and repeatedly that God doesn't exist at all. Some people rage against him by rebelling against Christian parents or a Christian upbringing. Some people rage against him by a life of indulgence and selfishness and greed and they wouldn't even say that they're rebelling against anyone but by the way that they live their lives by uh, the priorities they have they're just trying to block out any thought of needing to bow the knee to any king living for themselves instead 
Herod's sin was irrational, it was ridiculous, it was needless. But we could say the same for anyone and everyone who refuses to accept Christ as their king. Some people we love, some people we pray for, some people perhaps even who come to church, if they don't change, they will die like Herod, not by murdering infants, but by clinging to their sins and clinging to their pride instead of handing those things over to Christ. And we should be mindful here, here's a man who knew the Scriptures, or at least could call upon the Scriptures when he needed them. But it wasn't so that he could believe them and be changed by them. It was just to suit his own schemes and concerns. J.C. Ryle says, Familiarity with sacred things has an awful tendency to make men despise them. There's an awful lot of that in Protestant Ulster today. Familiarity with sacred things, which has led to men despising them. There are many whom from residence and convenience ought to be first and foremost in the worship of God, and yet are always last. What a sad case Herod is. He should have come along with the wise men and worshipped as sincerely as they did. Instead, he rages against an infant, a baby boy. We shouldn't be surprised, friends, when the world rages against Jesus. It always has. It always will. Jesus said he had come to cause division. Jesus divides marriages and siblings and friends and families into those who sincerely worship him, like the wise men, and those who rage against him, even if it's silently, like Herod. Do not rage against the king today, dear friend. Worship him. Kiss the son, as we thought about earlier in Psalm 2. Worship him sincerely, as the wise men did. And just as we close, we'll return to the wise men, because having thought about uh, the worshippers who uh, searched for the Messiah and the ruler who raged against the Messiah, we think finally about the joy of finding the Messiah. The joy of finding the Messiah. Verse 9 says, Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. <coughs> when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly. One writer says it was their cup was running over. Their cup was running over. Uh, sometimes we're full of joy just because a journey is over. And certainly I'm sure these men were glad that their journey was finally over. That the exhaustion and the miles and the wandering and the waiting was worth it. But there's even more joy. It's not just that their journey is over, that these men are overjoyed. Uh, the word Matthew uses here means intense emotion. This is the joy that can only come from knowing that you have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Verse 11 says that they saw the child with his mother. We'll see that language again this evening. The child with his mother. That's always the way that Jesus and Mary are described by Matthew uh, in the birth narratives. And it's, it's emphasizing that the child comes first. He's of first importance. He is most important. It says, when they saw him, they did what they had come to do. They worshipped him. They worshipped him. And it says that uh, in, verse, uh, uh, in verse 11. They fell down and worshipped him. 
Matthew also shows us that they come and give Jesus some beautiful gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, the traditional focus has been on what each of these gifts might have represented. Uh, some people saying, well, does gold not symbolize Jesus' kingship and myrrh being more associated with his death and so on? Uh, we can't, we don't, it's, it's speculation at the end of the day, but these were all common enough, frequently used items, particularly for wealthy men who had been on a long journey. Uh, they would have had these things close to hand. The bigger point, friends, is that, again, here we have the nations coming to worship the Jewish king. Here they are falling down before him, paying respect, offering him praise. And remember, he's just a little toddler. He's the age that one or two perhaps here this morning are. And these full-grown, wealthy, educated foreign men bow down before him. What must Joseph and Mary have thought seeing this happen? Sometimes parents, you know, it can get a little awkward just when a newborn is born and, and people are just saying, you know, kuchi 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 over and over again. That, that in itself gets a bit awkward after a while. Imagine seeing people bowing down and worshipping your child. What were Joseph and Mary thinking? Surely this was one of those moments that, as Luke says in his gospel, that Mary would have stored up in her heart and, and thought about for many days afterwards. Why did they do it? They did it because they believed that this little infant was God in human flesh. That he had chosen to become this weak and fragile being, and yet his glory remained. He was God become a man. He was the Messiah long promised, and now here at last. Wise, wealthy men worshipping a little baby or toddler. Friends, we're going to see over and over again in Matthew's gospel, the kingdom of God turns everything upside down. But as well as that, look at the joy it brings when searchers find the Messiah. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Is that your experience today of knowing Jesus, of worshiping God in and through the name of your Messiah? Can you say with the psalmist, I go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. Joy is one of those words that you'll probably see in the cushions and up in lights and on your TV screens over the coming weeks. We can take a measure of joy in time spent with family, in a holiday season, in gifts and good food. But none of that will give us exceeding joy. If you're only looking for joy in those places, you'll be as joyless come January as you were before. But there is lasting, real joy for those who wisely worship the Messiah. He is no longer that little infant in Bethlehem to whom we come offering gifts. He reigns supreme in glory today, having offered himself the greatest gift in our place for our sins on the cross and having risen again from the dead. And so today, don't rage against him like Herod. Seek him while he may be found like the wise men. Call upon him while he is near. Knock and the door will be opened and you will know the joy that these first wise worshippers of the Messiah knew. Amen.